Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elkin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Today, our good friend Peter Schneider, manager and executive secretary of the Public Lending Right Program, sits down with M.G. Vasanji, two-time Giller Prize winner and winner of the Governor General's Literary Award. Vasanji's latest collection of short stories, What You Are, explores the tensions between remembering past homes and belonging in new ones, weaving between wistful memories of youthful ambition and the compromises and comforts of age. The characters in these stories must negotiate distance between here and there, between lives imagined and lives lived, between expectation and disappointment, between inclusion and exclusion. Here's Peter Schneider in conversation with M.G. Vasanji. It's a delight to be joined over the internet with M.G. Vasanji to discuss his new book of stories, What You Are. And as we begin our chat today, sir, I think back over the years to the earlier times when we've met. And in earlier days, we've met in the Chateau Laurier Ballroom or in an amphitheater at the University of Ottawa or in an old Anglican church. And now yes. here we are in our, in our bedrooms at home in 2021. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the weird times. Your new book of stories, the 15 new stories, arrives as the world is still coping with the COVID-19 pandemic. And I noted as I began the book that the dedication at the front is to those who perished last year in the old age facilities in Ontario. Can you tell me a bit about what was your reaction to the first wave as it began to take hold here in Ontario last year? and your reaction to the deaths in, the, in the, the chronic care facilities in the old age homes? Well, my initial reaction was that uh, it will pass. You know, I was very optimistic about uh, human capabilities and uh, you know, we've overcome a lot uh, in last century and this one. But uh, with the deaths, especially of the seniors, I, I was, I've always felt that the way old people are treated you know, in, in Western culture and increasingly in Eastern, in Indian culture is, is not the value that I was brought up with, you know, where you know, you're supposed to look after your family, but somehow we tend to put them aside and uh, forget about them, except a few exceptional people. Some of whom I know who visit every, every day and so on. And, uh, my own mother ended up in, a, in an old people's home, which she always thought uh, was a prison. And uh, partly because, of course, there was a language problem and, you know, it was a hostile kind of environment uh, culturally. But, uh, you know, it, it seemed to me that it, this, this cannot be right. You know? And uh, that, that's what I thought. 
your book begins, the first story, the send-off, is exactly the scene of a matriarch with her family members gathered and the various interventions and the, you know, the reflections on a long life and when a life ends and the interventions that family make, members will make. And the sense sometimes of impatience. Uh, someone has lived a rich and full life and people just want them to hurry up and get off stage. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it's, it's fiction, it's a story, but partly based on observations, partly on my own experience. And uh, as I say, this sense of, uh, of guilt, I think that uh, we don't look after people when they're older and you know, they gave up their lives uh, looking after us. You know? And uh, it's, it's not uh, necessarily having lived a fulfilled life. Uh, the fulfillment came from making sure that the new generation was successful. Uh, so it, 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 um, for me, it was just a discarding of the old, you know, just getting rid of them and out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. Uh, and then, of course, uh, this thing happened. And I think now people are beginning to reevaluate how do we care for the for the aged? You know? you know, we don't allow euthanasia. So, but what we then uh, uh, supply people with are uh, these torture chambers. <laughs> you know? It just doesn't seem right. You know? Well, the the book is fiction, and the stories uh, are different insights and and different characters in 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 different contexts. But what I really enjoyed and appreciated was this sense, as you are now a writer in, in full career who has written many books and who is returning to the short story form, this is your third volume of published stories, that there's a richness and a, a reflectiveness now as you are yourself older and are reflecting on a half century of this diasporic experience in Canada and the United States and what that has meant now for several generations of people. And would you like to make a comment on how your own lens and perspective has changed over the decades and what you're able to witness and see now after you know, a half century of a North American experience? Well, uh... I first went to the United States and it was, I think, a second birth for me, you know, kind of very thrilling experience was everything was new and the Americans in those days were more welcoming, very open and uh, very open to find out where you came from. And I had no problems with telling them where I came from, you know, I went as a student and I came from Tanzania and I would say I come from Tanzania. And uh, then I came to Canada, which initially was quite disappointing after the excitement of the United States. But then and it was also very racist at that time, very in the sense that you could see racist, uh, what you call microaggression. And we, we lived through those for more than 30 years. You know, we just accepted it, knowing that, you know, our time will come because there are more and more of us arriving on the shores. And then observing how, how dramatically the country changed, you know, year by year, you know, decade by decade, in fact, to become, at least where I live now in Toronto, a much more accepting place, accepting of differences, accepting of cultures. Uh, uh, I personally, you know, maybe it's where I live, but you know, where, where, you know, where I live at one point was a very Anglo 
Canadian place, you know, and uh, and we felt a little bit of, uh, if not hostility, and a kind of strangeness. You know, some of the stores would look strangely at you, or you know, might not want to serve you with a friendly smile, or you know, uh, in some cases it was not friendly. Someone would walk by, you know, as you are in your lawn trying desperately to remove weeds, <laughs> you know, make some comment. But you know, they're gone, you know, and the country has changed, and whoever was at that time. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, the country, uh, for me, it has changed positively. Now, those, of course, who are born later see only the negative side of it because, of course, it still remains. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, someone like me who has seen uh, the really negative side where people were attacked uh, for what they wore or how they spoke or uh, name-calling and telling people, you know, go back to Pakistan even if you didn't come from Pakistan <laughs> or had never seen it and so on, to what it is now, uh, you know, that for, for me and both my wife agrees with me, a very positive change, you know. And again, partly it may have to do with uh, my own education and, you know, my own status and so on. But, uh, you know, everything I see, you know, for me has been a positive trend, you know, a very positive experience. Toronto is, in many ways, your canvas as an artist and your characters, many of whom in these stories are, are living in contemporary Toronto, have fascinating and rich individual personal histories and backstories. And a moment ago, you know, you mentioned the term microaggression and one of the classic microaggressions is for uh, a, a white Anglophone or, or settler Canadian to ask someone, well, where are you from? No, I mean, where are you from originally? But what's lovely and amazing in your work is this humanity which realizes that we're all from somewhere and that- Yeah, you know, I, I do, I'm not uh, offended when someone says, uh, where are you from? I said, you know, I live here, but you know, I came from, uh, Tanzania, you know, I lived in the United States. My grandparents came from uh, India. I can tell you more about that. <laughs> you know, it doesn't bother me at all. You know, I think it depends on your own level of belonging and confidence. Initially, of course, when people first came here and someone asked, you know, where do you come from? They would say, what do you mean where I come from? I come from Don Mills. <laughs> <You know>? And <laughs> I think, you know, but that for me, I, it never was a problem. As I said, when I was in the United States, you know, I would say I was from Tanzania, even if sometimes I thought that meant Tas Tasmania. You know? <laughs> you know? And I, I think, of course, racism is such a thing that sometimes you see uh, it's something hurtful when it's not there. Yeah. And then when the, it's, and you don't see what when it's there. And you still, uh, you still experience, uh, you know, the, the, the disturbing moments, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, a, a few months ago, I went to a garage where I've been going for about, you know, 10 years. Very expensive because of the area we live in and, you know, and I met the guy outside and I was not wearing a mask at that point. Uh, I was just at the gate and he started shouting at me. And I said, at first I was shocked. I said, yeah, I'm going to wear it. And then I said, you know, I've been giving you business for 10 years and this is how you talk to me. And of course, you know, so we made it up and I went to him again. And But, you know, that for a few days, even now, I wondered if I had been a white man with a white beard, you know, would he have spoken the same way? You never know, you know, because you were mm -hmm. of what you've lived through. 
all kinds of good things and bad things and racism and so on. But it's this little thing or big thing that, that really you can never get over. In, in the stories, in, in your body of work, what I find so compelling is this notion of layers and levels that people have. So you can be walking down a city street, you know, in midtown Toronto and passing you on the sidewalk are all of these personal histories and all of these voyages and all of these relationships to history. As you have matured your vision as a writer, do you feel that Canada now is very much your subject and perhaps always has been? Well, you know, there's a way, several ways of looking at it. You know, anyone who lives here, especially lived here for more than five years, you know, and, uh, <laughs> that's when you get your citizenship. But yeah. if you lived there long enough and uh, whatever you write has a certain vision, you know, even if it's, it's from, it's the stories are set outside, which for someone of my background are necessarily set, because that's my deepest experiences that I've had. But they are all conditioned by the fact that they are perceived from here. And I also believe, and I believe that from the very beginning, that what I was writing, in some ways, are Canadian stories. Because, you know, I mean, for other Canadians, the story of the world wars or the stories of Europe are their stories. So why can't my stories of, say, in Africa or India be Canadian stories? And not only that, but, you know, for my children, you know, they're more interested in my stories than they're interested in, you know, the, the Old Testament or the Bible or whatever, you know. And they're important even to me, but you know, it's not their stories. Their stories are what I bring for them. So I think people sometimes forget that when a story is said outside, it, you know, it depends. You know. The Holocaust is a Canadian story. Mm -hmm. The First and Second World Wars are Canadian stories. You know. And before that, you know, I mean, people go to English, you know, lessons learning Chaucer, you know, so they are Canadian, and yet. You know, one doesn't have to defend the fact that uh, you're bringing your history here to join the combined Canadian histories, you know, because we are many peoples, we have many histories, and I think they all, in some sense, are one history. In your experience, I can remember a few years ago, we, we met and we talked about your memoir of returning to East Africa, to your boyhood home, and to the travels that you made on the roads around East Africa, around Tanzania. and now it's practically impossible to imagine that kind of travel because of the pandemic um, and your stories return to memories of earlier places and earlier homes is there a nostalgia that still tugs at you as a writer although a few years ago you said you know peter i think i'm done with africa with going back to africa i think i've, I've made my peace but it was not with going back. But I think I guess going back in my in my writing. Yeah. Yeah. Although I do it, you know, you know, my story that's set in Delhi, the last novel, and the guy is from Africa. Yeah. And he lives in Toronto for many many years. You know? But so in that sense, it's still there. But stories that are immediately set in Africa, I don't think it would, I could I could write those because you know that subject is done. But still, going back. I still you know, long to go back and just just walk the streets, you know, and then come back. Uh, you know, just to, and I think a lot of people feel that way as they grow older. Uh, the pandemic has made this uh, very 
you know, she put that sharply in focus recently because uh, my wife you know, belongs to several chat groups and as these people have grown older, some of they exchange stories and some they exchange news and these news surprisingly are often about uh, Africa. Even if they're sometimes they're Israeli. You know? So that thing has not gone away. You know? But that doesn't mean they're not Canadians or not living here or don't feel at home here. But you cannot just cut off your feet and you know, cut off you know, yeah. who you are. It's part of you, and that, that's how what we are. You know, this, uh, I guess if someone comes from Newfoundland and comes to Toronto, and they would feel as nostalgic, you know, in, in, in the same way. In fact, after I wrote my novel Non-Newland, I received a phone call from someone, and he was from Newfoundland, living in Toronto. He said, "You know, I really identified with your book." <laughs> <laughs> you know. A lot of your book, the subtext is we all grow older. You know, yeah. our bodies begin to fail us. You know, our, our health becomes a preoccupation. And there's a number of funny passages in the book about various fad diets or regimes that people put themselves on to recover the, the fountain of youth or lost youth. You have a real affection for people who are going through uh, the midlife period and entering into their older years. And I think for me, what I really appreciate is that in their memories and in, in, if you will, their feelings, um, that they change over, over time. And there's also something lovely that recurs through the book, which is a theme of what if or lost love or relationships that were severed. Would you like to make a comment on writing those stories at this juncture in your life about, you know, the life that uh, people could have had or could not have had because of circumstance, but the things that haunt them. Yeah, events that shaped you. And uh, I guess what if, I, you know, somehow you wish you could live many lives and live all of them, you know, <laughs> all, the, all those experiences that are, that are still you know, very tender in your heart, you know, that uh, it just happened one way and didn't happen the other way. And I, for my part, have not lost contact with most people that I knew. Uh, I, I just can't, you know, I don't make enemies out of old friends and so on. Uh, but yeah, it is uh, coming to terms with uh, the past, what happened, why we are where we are. And uh, perhaps it's, it's, it's has to do with age, I don't know. I, it's also coming to terms with your life. You know? It's I have to deal with some things before I go, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And this... Uh, you know, it's this person or this love or this, uh, you know, uh, ch you know, change of direction and so on. Uh, it just, uh, you know, there are some very profound experiences that you forget how important they were, you know, how, uh, you know, the people you met, how nice they were and, you know, you wish, uh, did you thank them enough or did you appreciate them enough and so on. Or sometimes you, have, you miss people who died, you know, young and so on. It's, a, it, it's coming to terms with your life, you know, and I think this, this story has allowed me to do that. For me, reading these stories, the stories, by the way, are like jewels. They are beautiful, they are concise, um, they are distinct from one another, and yet they cohere to form a beautiful pattern. Is there something that you appreciate as a writer about the story form that allows you to do things that novels or other forms don't permit you to do? The story, I guess, it sort of crystallizes 
if I may put it that way, some experiences. Yeah. You look at just one experience and sort of build around it. Just that, and you know, just one experience, and you know, to make to bring it sharp, sharply into focus. The language is important. Uh, you know, the, the conciseness is important. And uh, since it's just one story you're working at at a time, you you have more time to look at the words you use. You know how you frame it, and uh, in that sense, it's also very painful because you're taking a, a stab, you know, into yourself. It's not a broad expanse, you know, canvas that you're writing at. So some of the stories are painful to write, but they're also a pleasure to write because you know they, when they work just right, when the words come and so on. So it, it's. It's a different experience from a novel, you know, where it's just like as if you're exploring a country <laughs> when you're writing a novel. Mm. In a story, you're exploring a person, you know, a heart, a life. You know. the, the stories are all so vivid in this collection and so beautifully juxtaposed against one another. Over how many years did you write these stories? Did you intend to write them as an album, as a collection, or did they come one at a time over, over a longer period? Maybe five years, they, you know, between novels or, you know, sometimes some memories, some experience that goes away, but sort of, you know, creates a germ of a story that uh, sort of I sort of walk slowly at, you know, kind of shaping it and, you know, carving it out. Uh, but I, I would say five years. Uh, I'm not sure, to be honest, but it would have been between novels and, uh, okay. and they just come, you know, when, you know, when the time is right, uh, our story is right, you know. And, but otherwise, for example, now I cannot think of a story I can write. You know? Who knows? You know, you know the, the 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 collection moves around quite a bit around the world and around different belief systems, and many of the people in your in your stories have strong beliefs and convictions, and many of them have a. Uh, a, a changed nature, perhaps, to tradition or to their faith. And one of the things that I, I really appreciate, appreciate in your work is that it's clear from your writing that you embrace humanity and that you're not a dogmatic fundamentalist and that you don't have much time for fundamentalism. You want to make a comment about belief systems and, and, and how people, I suppose, either evolve or don't and, and what, they, what they do to both nourish people and divide them. Yeah, you mean religious beliefs? Yes. Uh, yeah, I moved on from a very religious background. Uh, I was, you know, my brought up by a widow, so you know, religion played an important part in my mother's survival. Or <laughs> so she thought, and uh, in a small community in a small country at that time. Uh, but uh, when I went to university, and you know, when you see the whole world around you, and everyone believes they are on the right track, you know, then you realize that, you know, the world is big and uh, you're on your own and uh, everyone is on their own. But for some people, of course, uh, these beliefs remain. And I, I don't treat them with contempt because uh, I remember the people who had these beliefs when I was a child. And they are from where I come from, from my community, my family. I, I cannot dismiss them. Although I cannot have the same beliefs, I cannot dismiss their beliefs for, because they are so important to them. Some of them live for those beliefs, you know, that's all they have. Even though they, you know, they may be doing well otherwise, but 
it's this that sort of keeps them going day to day and I, I cannot dismiss that. But uh, for me, you know, I sort of became a kind of existentialistic beginning and now I just, I'm what I am, you know, I just live by certain, what I consider humanist principles or humanitarian principles, not that I'm always you know, a decent person, but I try. Well, I, I find that the, the way in which your characters live their lives and express themselves um, to be really profoundly realistic in that, you know, people are not monolithic as cultures and there's, there's variation from person to person and generation to generation. And sometimes the fascinating aspects are how the generations are both similar and very different from one another and how they misunderstand one another. Yeah, I guess one can see that in one's own children, but you, know, <laughs> you, you always think you're the other. You're right. You know? Yeah, <laughs> of course you have to give some values to the next generation, and they then of course learn and you know do with it what they can. And I feel that from with my sons, they do appreciate. It. They would not want me to be anything else because you know they have to. They need the a sounding board. So you have to stick stick by what you are, and you know they they evolve into what they become. You know? So you know it's just, uh, and you know you find yourself uh, repeating. You know sometimes behaving like your own parents, and you know sometimes watching your kids, you sometimes find them <laughs> echoing you. So you know we, we never they, they never leave us. You know the older generation; they're part of us. You know? I think, again, this is the joy for me in reading your work, and especially the, these latest stories, is this sense of uh, almost rueful acknowledgement that we're, we all have our flaws, we all have our blind spots about ourselves, um, but that there can be acceptance of the fact that we're imperfect. Uh, at the heart of this collection of stories is a story called A Shooting in Don Mills. And for someone just looking at the title of a story, they may make all kinds of presumptions or assumptions about what a story with that title would be all about. But in this work, in this piece, it's very surprising in that what you may think has happened is actually not what has happened. And there's actually something that I think is really interesting about the power relations which still exist in, in our big cities and in Canada today. And you touch on it in such a mysterious way, yet it has such a powerful conclusion, this story. Could you tell us a bit about writing this story in particular? It's a tough one because I think it just came. Uh, it's, uh, I think I imagined this one. Uh, but I imagined it on the basis of what I observed. You know, I, was, I used to live in Philadelphia when my sister uh, moved, my married sister moved to Don Mills in Ontario, in Toronto. And uh, just observing the life there, it, it's this story just... And some of the observations of people going to prayer and so on are, are from that, uh, you know, what I observed, you know, just simple lives of people, you know, getting to meet and know each other from back home and creating a kind of almost another home here. And then some of the darker aspects of, of city life, you know. you know, you know, the police and, you know, some police are nice and some are not nice and, you know, 
and uh, see what can happen. And uh, it is kind of a tragic uh, life of of a woman of Indian origin, and how how she can how she never copes with with a rape, and uh, decides to have her own revenge. <laughs> you know? So it, it was a kind of, kind of, I don't know, angry story or a painful story, I'm not sure. Very powerful story, and it's very beautifully told. The last story in the book um, resonated with me because I, of course, know it's a story, but you came, as we, we, we mentioned at the beginning of our, our chat, you told us that you came uh, as a student to the United States before you were in Canada. You, you, you were at MIT. Um, and what I think many of us can see in the last decade or so is a change in America, in the United States, from the type of society that we had hoped it would be, you know, decades ago when you, you know, you said it more welcoming. And now this inwardness and this, this harshness and hostility towards the outside world and to any form of, of difference. But it's a beautiful, bittersweet story to conclude uh, this collection. And would you please share with us, you know, the the feeling you had writing about American characters, not Canadian characters per se, but a, an American context in this story? And the feeling I had was uh, kind of, you know, sometimes I, I go to on the web and uh, try to look up people from the past whom I've lost contact with and. Uh, in this case, I found someone who had died in Vermont, and I was pretty sure, I wasn't 100%, but pretty sure he was the boy in the family that I had met uh, in New Jersey, you know, who had been my host family. And so I sort of made up this story, and it is a story of, you know, seeing people as, you know, someone who is new to the continent, totally green, and the way he's welcomed as if he's just anybody else and uh, accepts it and then as he grows older he realizes that you know they had a complexity to them too in the flaws and so on and uh, it's, it's a kind of mixed story it's remembered with great fondness for for what america was what this family was uh, and uh, how good people can be anywhere uh, in the world, you know, it, it, it was, it gave me a great joy to write, to be honest, just to pay my respect, so show my gratitude to, to a side of the United States, because, you know, I came on a fellowship to MIT, and that fellowship changed my life completely, it changed the way I look at the world, what I am today, it gave me a new worth, and for that, you know, I, I cannot be grateful enough, you know. And uh, it was a way to to say that, and I think I said that in my last sentence. You know, that there is a heart in America. I I have to believe and have to hope that that the heart still still beats. And you know, as we're thinking about all of the frightening and terrible things that are happening in the world, it's also true that America, for the first time, has a female vice president. You know, Kamala Harris, who is of Indian and black descent, you know, yes. which is something we would not have imagined or dare to imagine 50 years ago. Yes, that's quite amazing. Although when I came to the United States, it was undergoing another upheaval, you know, 
in the 60s or 70s revolution of the youth. You know? Yeah. And we were at the front of that. And it, it, uh, it was a profound experience, to be honest. What are you working on right now? Are you working on another novel? Are you able to write during the pandemic? I can do nothing else except write and eat and go for walks. <laughs> but yeah, I have a novel that I've finished. Uh, it's it's about, uh, it's the first time I've dealt with my, uh, with my life as a, as a physicist. You know? And uh, otherwise, I've, that part has not been in my novels, except very, very indirectly. And as this time, I thought I would look at the life of a scientist, a physicist. And that's what I've done. Uh, and it, it's finished, and I'm just waiting for what will happen to it. Uh, I think it's a good, good novel, but you know, I have to hear from my agent. You know. Well, what I hope is that when the novel is ready and the publishers uh, set the time to put it out in the world, that the pandemic will have ended and you can be on the road again and come to Ottawa. And I hope that in our futures, there's another meeting where we can sit and talk about this book with an audience. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Thank you. That was Peter Schneider in conversation with M.G. Vasanji about his new collection of short stories, What You Are. As always, I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. It's always a good idea to buy a book, and of course, you can't go wrong supporting local independent booksellers. Our spring season runs through to the end of June, and it's all available online at writersfestival.org, so all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.